This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books Network. I am Atrey Majumdar and with me today is Professor John Stratton Hawley, who is Claire Toe Professor of Religion at Barnard College, New York. Professor Hawley is a well-known figure in the study of Hinduism, especially the Bhakti tradition. We are here today to talk about not his most recent book, which is Krishna's Playground, Oxford University Press, 2020, but a somewhat older book of his, A Storm of Songs, India and the Idea of the Bhakti Movement, Harvard University Press, 2015. Welcome, Professor Holly, to the, this episode of the New Books Network. Thank you. I feel very welcomed indeed. It's a great honor to be returning to a book that was published some years ago. Who knew that it still exists in present time? We are very happy to have you with us today. And without further ado, let me jump to some of my questions. But first, I, w- I wish to ask you, for our audiences which are, who are not so well exposed to the study of bhakti and do, may not know your work so, so much, uh, would you like to take them through the main ideas in this book, A Storm of Songs? Yeah. Well, first of all, the word story is important. I do think that the, that bhakti movement is a story. It's not historical fact. You know, what is fact? We as historians, we are all historians. We're busy shaping fact in the present day. Look at our country, Donald Trump. He's busy shaping fact by declaring fact to be fiction, namely something false. We see this happening in the, you know, in the, the terrible history of our country at this moment. The story of the bhakti movement is not, I think, that. There are resources for understanding the idea that bhakti developed through time. But the story of how that happened, happened at a particular time. And when was that? Chapter one of the book talks about various, I call them, I think, discontents about the bhakti movement story. One of those discontents is How did Muslims play a role in the shaping of the bhakti movement? And people took different sides on that question. Parachan, the great historian at the University of Allahabad, who was a Kayist, wanted to put forward the idea that really it was the existence of Islam in India that shaped bhakti into what we today would call a bhakti movement. On the other hand, Minakshi Jain, who is associated with the BJP, is arguing just exactly the opposite case. So there are issues involved. Or is it against Shankara or with Shankara? Again, major figures are involved. So the bhakti movement story is a story that starts with some disagreements, actually, about what it is. So then, when do we begin to have this story? Chapter 2 is about the story of bhakti that is told in the Bhagavata Mahatma, so a text written in Sanskrit that talks about the glory, the Mahatma, the greatness of the Bhagavata Purana. And it begins with the famous line, Utpanadrade saham vridhim karnataka gata, kachit kachit maharashtra gurture jinatangata. It is Bhakti herself who is speaking and talking about how she's born in the south and moved to the north. 
And in some ways, the climax of that self-account features Brindavan. Brindavanam punakrapya navinevam surupini jataham yuvati samyak preshtarupato sampatam. She says, in Brindavan, on reaching it, I was renewed, I became lovely once again. She had some troubles in Gujarat, perhaps we could talk about that. And she says, now I go about as I ought to be, a young woman of superb appearance. The story goes on from there, but note the position of Brindavan in this story. And today you and I share a great interest in Brindavan. What did she mean when she said she was rejuvenated there? I think she meant the Brindavan that was built in the 16th century, a rejuvenation of an idea of Brindavan that existed before, very far to the south, uh, but that didn't exist in a physical form until then. So that's one Bhakti movement story. The other major one is the story of the four Sampradays, which we can talk about. And that story uh, comes to us from the north in about the year 1600. So we're talking about the Mughal era. That's also true for the Bhagavata Mahatmya. Our earliest manuscript is 1714. It is not older so far as we know than that, and those manuscripts come once again from the north. So a major lesson here is that the story of the movement of bhakti through time, first of all, is a story told as a whole in the north and not in the south. And Vrindavan figures importantly, so that's at the center of the book. What was happening in Vrindavan in the 16th century? Uh, it turns out to be an important question because history has been overwritten, uh, written over, so as to create images of the past that I think are not historically factual. Chapter 5 concerns the institutionalization of the four Sampraday story, the four movements, and that happened in Jaipur, in the great uh, kingdom of Jai Singh, the second Soe Jai Singh, at the beginning of the 18th century. The sixth chapter picks up from there, taking us to Bengal and through the Brahmo Samaj to Rabindranath Tagore. Uh, and Bengal, of course, was the center of British India, so you have a series of very interesting uh, intersections there. And there, there's the great figure of Hazari Prasad Devedi. I think he is responsible for the idea that bhakti is a movement, or as he himself put it, an andolan. A movement, that's a word, andolan is a word that both in Bengali and especially in Hindi, I think serves to translate the English word movement. The seventh and final chapter of the book is to ask, once we see that our historical impression that bhakti existed as a movement in Indian history, once we see that that is a perception that was created in time, created first in the north about the south, what do we do about that? Shall we go on speaking as if the bhakti movement existed, or shall we somehow try to take account of the fact that this is a historical construction, a reconstruction of the past. If we were to look beyond the idea of movement then, which is really a 20th century idea, first enunciated in Hindi by Hazari Prasadavidi, if we were to look beyond that, what would we see? So I make a couple of suggestions in that final chapter. There's the book in about five minutes. Thank you. Uh, I think two questions stem from what you just said, but first let me ask the more kind of predictable question. Uh, there's there's a lot of talk in your scholarship and in, in others 
uh, about the divergence or convergence between bhakti and the shankaracharya tradition could you tell us a little bit about that sure um there's a very interesting figure involved here um who's um she was writing in english she taught at the university of delhi and her name is krishna sharma she was a great uh, devotee you could say of shankara she really um embraced the non-dualist vedanta movement that's associated especially with his name so she took umbrage she wasn't pleased at the idea that bhakti might have been in some way a rejection of that intellectual tradition as it often is said to be and there you have two great philosophical figures pitted one against the other shankara on the one side is a pure non-dualist let us say and on the other side ramanuja writing in the south 11th century or so at Triangam, who is much more of a theist. Krishna Sharma was interested in trying to show that the figure of Kabir, who in the course of the 16th century, perhaps part of the 15th, was so important to North India, was speaking as a sort of Shankara type person. So her primary, she had two primary motives for re-engaging the idea of the Bhakti movement. And she was the first one in print who wanted to emphasize the fact that it was an idea, not a fact. One of those was to try to show that there's a direct line between Shankara and Kabir. And the other was to try to show that certain malformations in the idea of the Bhakti movement come not from India, but from the West and from uh, people who wrote in and thought in English, people like George Pearson. She wanted to say, that it's this Reformation heritage that I've been talking about, which has um, perverted the idea of bhakti so that it looks like this European reform movement of a theistic nature, whereas actually she thinks of it as being more than theistic. She wants to, in that way, align Shankara with Kabir. Right. Um, but would you say, in terms of uh, philosophically, that uh, that bhakti has a tradition of non-dualism within it, or what are your thoughts on that question? Well, what would you say in thinking about Kabir, for example? Kabir was, I think, <laughs> who are our candidates here for who is most important in North India in the 16th century? Was it Kabir? Was it Chaitanya, from whom we only have eight lines of Sanskrit verse, actually, but a great deal of story about him? Was it Kabir? What is it? Was it Chaitanya? Was it Mirabai, about whom we have only one poem that can be dated firmly to the 16th century, and even it is simultaneously associated with another poet than Mirabai? Who are we talking about? Kabir is someone we really can talk about as a person. So what would you say? Is Kabir a non-dualist? Is he a theist? He certainly speaks of Ram. But when he says the name Ram, he, it's a very famous poem of Kabir, at least attributed to him, in which he makes fun of the story of Ram, as you would find it in the Ramayana. The Ram he is talking about is rides above that Ram, or rides below that Ram. Is that a non-dual Ram? I'm not so sure. But it certainly is different from the storied Ram that we re meet, for example, in the Ramchadik Manas. And even the Manas, by Tulsidas, takes on this problem. So it's hard to answer that question, I think. Right. Uh-huh, uh-huh, thank you. 
Um, and the second question is, uh, I'm reminded that you are speaking of Brian Hatcher and others who were studying uh, 19th century Hinduism, especially the Brahmo Samaj and, Beng and Bengal reform movement yeah. and things like that. I, and are saying that what you're calling the Reformation heritage um, is very much present in the 19th century, especially in Bengal, where um, a number of um, older ideas, ancient texts are being revived through uh, through the lens of, of British colonial corrective, corrective kind of lenses. Uh, would you say that uh, Bhakti in the 16th century, if, if it is born, um, if, if it is born actually as a movement or an idea of a movement much later than we actually think, uh, is it something like that? That there's a there's a uh, outsider influence that is shaping this idea of a movement uh, which actually didn't exist um, in, in in any kind of coherent form earlier on. Well, that's a really good question, and I'm grateful to you for taking us to Bengal, one of the places where the idea of the Bhakti movement really happens. Oddly, the earliest reference in the English language to the phrase the Bhakti movement occurs specifically in a Brahmo setting. It's, um, it takes um, place in the, what was it called? Uh, historical study of the Brahmo Samaj, I think, written by Sophia Dobson Collett, of all people, in 1873. Um, and what she's referring to when she speaks of the Bhakti movement is not what we've been talking about, but something that happens inside the Brahmo Samaj when Keshav Chandrasen takes it over and takes it in a kind of devotional or rather feeling-oriented uh, direction. So she's, as it happens, she's the first person to use the phrase Bhakti movement in English and she's using it in this very specific sense that doesn't really map onto what we're talking about. But it does kind of show, as you suggested, someone using the English language, uh, struggling for a way to talk about what was happening, in that case, inside the Brahma Samaj with the advent of Keshav Chandra Sen. It's a really interesting point. And then we, that phrase movement, I think, gets translated back into Bengali and especially Hindi under the, the rubric of Andolan later on. That's a really interesting, I don't know, should I be quiet now? I was going to talk about Tagore and Shantaniket and all of that. But let me just say a word about that. Um, this fascinating figure, Hazari Prasadavedi, I think in Hindi, I think he was really responsible for the idea of Bhakti Andolan. We sometimes think of it as being a product of uh, the discourse, the language of um, of, uh, gosh, Acharyji, Sharmaji, Ram there we go, whose, the first edition of his uh, Hindi Sahitya Katihas comes out in 1929, but he makes no, no mention of the Bhakti movement. But, but Hazari Psadvedi does. In his study of Surdas, not accidentally, which was published in 1936, and uh, he does that when he is actually thinking about what George Grierson, the head of the archaeological, sorry, the linguistic story of Lin India, had to say about uh, Bhakti's history in India. And uh, he uses the phrase Bhakti movement as he thinks about Grierson. So that's where it comes from. But where is Hazari Devedi when he comes to this formulation? He is sitting in Shantiniketan. And why is he there? Because Tagore 
who had already established Chin Bhavan, China House, as part of what would be Vishwabharati, decides at a certain point that really he should have a Hindi Bhavan as well, and he should have a Hindi department, a Hindi Vibhag, as part of Shantiniketan. And he pulls Hazari Prasadavedi, this young uh, product of uh, Banaras Hindu University, over to Net Bengal, and it's there, apparently, that um, that uh, Hazari Prasad finishes his inaugural work on Surdas and begins to think about Surdas in terms of the whole panoply of bhakti. That's where the bhakti, the bhakti movement idea comes from. I think it's not an accident that it happens in Bengal and under the, let's say, the effulgence, the sight of um, Rabindranath. Here is a society that is extremely cosmopolitan, I want to say, but also interested in its own foundations. And if you said, interested in seeing what happened in the 16th century and trying to understand it in new ways, that's the Vaishnava side of it. But, but uh, Hazari Prasad's teacher, Priti Sen, was particularly interested actually in people like um, Dadu and others that were active, uh, Gurnanak, uh, active in the Punjab. There was this activity around what is the past that was happening in Bengal because of the just intellectual liveliness of the setting, which was cosmopolitan on the one hand, but deeply committed to its own uh, foundations on the other hand. Right. Uh, so, so this project really, uh, and, and this book, um, centers around this idea of, of the construction of a past. Uh, why was that necessary at at some point in the in the 17th or the 18th century, whenever these these first texts seem to emerge? Uh, I mean, British colonialism of the 19th century of the high the high colonialism has not set in yet. Why was that? Well, necessary? that's a really good question, and I try to answer it. It takes a few pages to try to answer it, but here in a few words, I think is what I would say. Let's take this idea of the bhakti movement. You know. Beginning in the Dravida country and moving up the western coast to Vrindavan, and then, by the way, going forward to a performance of the Bhagavata itself, which happens in Hardwar on the uh, on the slopes of the Himalayas. So, what is that about? I think, at least as a hypothesis, I think that it's a kind of uh, reaction, if I can use that word to a liberal tendency in the Vaishnavism of North India at the time, which allowed for the story that was written in the Sanskrit Bhagavata to be retold in, uh, in Bhasha, in the language of the people. Undoubtedly, this had been happening you know, always. You don't just have things in Sanskrit. That's a learned language. You have it in the people's language. But you had Kayasthas, for example, or Bhaktas, who were literate in Sanskrit and eager to render it in the vernacular. I think it was a group of people who had probably had themselves origins to the South, if that's to say connections to the South, and I think specifically to the Southwest, to the coast of Karnataka, who wanted to reestablish their authority as the way in which the Bhagavata should be performed in Sanskrit, in North India. And that's why the story, it passes through Vrindavan, but it ends in Hardwar. 
with, uh, with this fabulous performance of the Bhagavatam. So one answer to your question is that the story of the Bhakti movement is a way to connect South and North through the Sanskrit language, through the idea of Bhakti, in such a way that these Brahmins, however large the group was, would continue to have purchase on the performance of that text. You and I both happen to know the great Srivats Goswami, who is a marvelous performer of the Bhagavata in modern-day Vrindavan, and he travels throughout India to do so. He is a person who uh, knows the Sanskrit upside and down, who has spent years of his life learning that text so that it's on the inside of him, and he can speak it in various languages, Hindi especially, but he does a beautiful Bengali, speak it as if he were the Bhagavata. This, I think, is quite a different sense of opening that Sanskrit text to people's languages than we seem to get in this rather more conservative narrative that we now know as Bhagavata Mahatmya. And by the way, if you know the Bhagavata Mahatmya because you've got the Gita Press edition of the Bhagavata Purana, please be careful to know that they were not written by the same person or by the same groups of people. The Mahatmya comes much, much later. And I would argue we have no knowledge of it before the beginning of the 18th century. So it's a, it's a recent story, relatively recent story about a deep past. That takes me to, my, to the second set of questions I wanted to ask, uh, one of which, an important one of which, is concerning uh, language and, and Bhakti is taking some Sanskrit texts away, as you say, towards Bhasha, towards the languages of the people. And how is this happening? In, in, in what senses are, are texts getting translated? Are new texts coming up? Um, what is this, this linguistic transition? How is it happening? And, and, and what, are its, what are its significant impacts, if you can speak to that? This is a huge question, as I'm sure you are aware. And you're just trying to embarrass me by asking it. It's a huge question, but it is in some ways the kind of question that uh, Sheldon Pollock tried to engage in his magisterial work, uh, The Language of the Gods in the World of Men. Pollock uh, has the overall thesis that these kinds of transformations and discussions between the educated language of Sanskrit and Prakrits, some of which are very educated and have to be learned, and then languages that people just spoke tended to happen in courts. And he's thinking especially of the courts of Karnataka because he worked especially there. Um, I don't doubt that that's true. And my current project actually has to do with the way in which the image of Surdas, that great Bhakti poet, was reshaped in Udaipur at the beginning of the 18th century and where at court. So. What Shelley argued turns out to be true for me. But that cannot be the only place where we had a mutual engagement between spoken languages and learned languages. They must also have happened in temples, in mattas, that's to say in monastic establishments. They must also have happened wherever there were learned people, people who had studied books or oral traditions, so that would include Brahmins, but also Kayastas, and not just Kayastas, but Persian speakers, people who worked at courts and beyond them, Sufi, Dargahs. This was happening in many, many settings. 
So when we think about the relationship between you know, that beautiful language, Sanskrit, and so complex, whose effort sometimes was to try to encapsulate, to give an eternal form to something uh, more protean that's out there in the world, we should be aware of the other side of that, that namely there is this protean reality going on. For North India, we don't even know what happened really very much before the 15th century because our texts have, uh, have been lost. The South is better on this score. Right. Uh, some of the, am I, am I right in assuming that some of the older, even before Jayadeva Gita Govinda, uh, some of the older South, South Indian poems and, and texts that one finds are uh, not in Sanskrit? That's right. They certainly are not in Sanskrit. They're in Tamil. <laughs> and all you need to do is talk with a Tamil speaker to find out what is the real <laughs> classical language of India. You know? Is it Sanskrit? Well, maybe, but it's also Tamil. Right, the, and and that's what I I, I wanted to check. Um, but uh, following from from your response to the to the language and bhasha question, uh, you translate from I'm guessing three languages: Braj, Hindi, and Sanskrit. Oh wow! Well, wish me luck. Um, and and yeah. are there more? Are there no, more? There are more. <laughs> and even that is a great you know difficulty for me. It's it's not always easy. Talk a little bit about your translation and, and, and translation as a practice, as an, as an the act of translation. That's a very sweet question because uh, it picks me up where I actually am these days. I'm turning back to a series of Surdas poems that have not, by and large, been translated yet because they're the ones that are illustrated at Udaipuras. What is it like to be a translator? In some ways, Atre, you know better than I because you know from your childhood what it is to speak more than one language. So what is it to make that shift from one to another? All I... You know, I, I grew up speaking Bengali, and, and, but if I, want, if I want to, to translate, say, a Tagore or a Jibonananda Das poem into English, I, I would be stumped. So being a native speaker of Bengali and almost a native speaker of English, does not make me a translator, so I want to know from you what is it that makes a translator. <laughs> I'm sticking with I'm by my guns here. I'll bet you're more of a translator than I am. Simply to be able to work in two languages, you mentioned two, three actually, simultaneously does make you a translator, I think. But for me, who is really a monolingual person who has had to learn other languages in school and starting much too late, I started Hindi at 30. Ay, 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 what can one learn at 30? What's it like? Well, I was thinking about this question, actually, and thinking about a particular bud of uh, Ravi Das. And, and let me read it to you in the version that appears in the Guru Granth Sahib. Um, and I turn to it because it's a sort of explication of his own position in society which was that of a shoemaker, as you know, someone who dealt with leather. Oh, that was looked down upon, as it still is looked down upon today, because it involves physical contact with the skins of animals recently dead. It's about making shoes. Chamadata gantan janai, loka gathave panahi, ara nahi jiyato po, nahi rambi tauro po, loka ganti ganti khara bigucha, Ravidasa Japa Ramanama, there is the name of Ram, 
रविदास जपे राम नाम मोहि जमसेओ नहीं कामा Death has no business with me, he says, as long as I keep the name of Ram in my mind. Well, what interested me especially about this poem is its focus on simultaneously shoes, the making of shoes. He says he's no good at it, despite the fact that if you go to the Amartya Katha version, you see he's a fabulous, you know, shoemaker. He's no good at it, but people come to him for shoes, what's he going to do? But then he goes on to make a metaphor of it. He says, Loka ganti ganti karabigutsa. People, ganti ganti. Tie, he takes that metaphor of tying one piece of leather to another. Loka ganti ganti karabigutsa. People tie themselves in knots by trying to tie everything up. So he takes his own position and tries to um, universalize it, see how it might apply to other people. Now let me turn to, try to find a page where. Yeah, so I do include this poem early on in the book because it struck me as so typical, in a way, of what happens with bhakti. A person is involved there, a trade, a particular location to society, but seeing a general lesson in it. Here's how I translate it. I've never known how to tan or sew, though people come to me for shoes. I happen the needle to make the holes, or even the tool to cut the thread. Others stitch and knot, and tie themselves in knots, while I, who do not not break free. I keep saying Ram and Ram, says Ravidas, and death keeps his business to himself. So I hope you can hear that in the course of feeling this poem from the inside, the word not, as in I am not speaking now, although I am, suggested to my ear the word not, K-N-O-T, which represents, you know, a little something that happens when you tie together two pieces of thread. I think that's what's happening in this poem. He's making an association between what we should not think and should not do and the existence of a knot. So it was an, an unusual example of an occasion when to my ear somehow came that double sense of knot in English that would do to translate this poem. But let me just say how unusual that is. You know, to be able to, to repeat uh, a slesha, a pun, that occurs either directly or indirectly in the original is something that happens only rarely. So what can one do otherwise? I wouldn't know what to say except just to listen to how it is that I, as an English speaker, take in this poem Try to stick with the boundaries set formally by the poet himself, in this case, four verses with a rhyme at the end. So I try to translate into four verses. If it takes more than one line to translate a verse, then I observe an indentation so people can see the structure of the original. And then always, of course, in the case of North Indian Bhakti poetry, to produce the name of the poet as he himself allows his name to enter the poem at the end. This is radically different from the style that was established by A.K. Ramanujan, the, A, the great A.K. Ramanujan, working with, with uh, Telugu and especially Kannada and Tamil because of the different structures of those languages. So my, I guess my yes. hope would... You cannot have this kind of signature at the end. The, signature does, sometimes, do. the signature does sometimes occur 
but it doesn't occur in a poem of this limited length. It comes much later at the end of a decade. And the structure of Tamil, such right. that I understand it, uh, you know, you have to wait for a long time before you get the verb. And that's not the case in Hindi. So a language may well, the original language, the giving language, should have an effect, I think, mm. on how a poem comes across mm. in English. You should be able to get some kind of inclination of how it seemed in the original from reading the English translation. Mm. There's a sonic effect when you read out the poem in, in the vernacular for the first time. Um, and there's, there's the sonic effect uh, translates somehow, I can't exactly say how, through the English. And, and you know what I mean? That, that there's, there's a kind of um, sound sensorium that a, that a poem generates, which um, doesn't often carry through in many translations. To the new language in which it, it is translated, how do you do you pay attention to that? In I try, how? but I don't know how except to say that when when I enter into the sort of mood of translation for a pad in Hindi, it's like going into a room and closing the door, and then you know I say the pad to myself. I try to understand what the individual words are. Try to pay attention to where they fall. And then some mysterious thing happens whereby something comes out in English. And then it, as it were, it corrects itself. I'll find myself going back to it and I'll hear something I didn't hear before. It's quite miraculous. And I bet it happens to you all the time as a user of multiple languages, even though you may not be aware of it all the time. I don't know. And I wouldn't hold myself up as a sure. good translator, but you know, I just I try to do my best and then hope with full confidence that other people would come up with quite a different translation. But I hope it would be at least mm -hmm. defensible in relation to the original. And what is the relationship that in, in your estimation, uh, when you translate a poem and, the, and there is a new poem in English which exists uh, with some relation to, to an original poem in a different language, um, what is the relationship that, that you derive between the two of them? Yeah, I, I don't know how to answer the question except to say that somehow is what my life is about. But let's, let's stick with a single word here. And this is the word Ram. Ramanama. Ravidasa hmm. Jape, Ramanama. So there's Jape. How did I translate that? Hang on, let me look at it. It's on page 17 of the book. Here we go, it's on 15. So my index is faulty. Yes. Okay, here it is. So that line gets translated. I keep saying Ram and Ram, says Ravidas, and death keeps his prisons to himself. So there was an issue with Ram. Who, you know, who am I speaking to? Do I think I'm speaking to someone who is hearing the word Ram for the first time? Should I use the word God, which would be the default word for English, I suppose? Ah, uh, it's a three-letter word. Like the word Ram, it's sometimes, uh, you know, God is sometimes written without the vowel in English, so as to point out that it moves beyond itself. That's the kind of word that Ram is in the original here. And there's a whole set of poems that explore that, that go back to, for instance, Sita sending a message to Rama in the Ramayana. So this is a big word. I decided to leave it as Ram. But you'll notice that I 
Hmm. I repeated it. I keep saying Ram and Ram because I wanted to convey something of the hmm. sense of what Japa is. It's not just saying yeah. something once. So you had to, hmm. I felt you had to just say it more than once in the course of the poem. Something like that. Hmm. Each occasion presents its own <laughs> difficulties. And believe me, there is no right answer. There isn't, of course. Um, I'm, I'm interested, I mean, I, we could talk endlessly about this translation business. I, I've been reading, a, a, I mean, uh, most of the bhakti poetry I read is in English other than a few, few hmm. things in Bangla or, or Hindi and I don't have Braj. Um, and I'm interested in, in, in um, what, you, what you might have to say about the possibility of spiritual excitement um, expressed through the English language. Once a poem is translated, or a, you know, a sort of new English poem of the of a um, bhakti genre it comes into being, is it able to express the um, a comparable or a commensurate kind of spiritual excitement um, that one would um, have uttered the, the the original Braj or Bengali or Kannada poem in? And uh, does that question concern you at all? Well, it certainly interests me, and thank you for putting it that way. After all, I only have access to really one linguistic stream of India, a little bit of Sanskrit in addition. No access to Tamil at all, or Kannada. So I know those languages only through translation, and thank goodness there are great translations. Um, we use the, the name of A.K. Ramanujan. Absolutely fabulous person. And when he read his own translations, he had a tenor quality voice. They sounded different from the way they sound for anybody else. Still, I can turn to his translations and they become mine in the reading of it. So I would want to say, yes, I mean, what a precious thing to be able to have access to a language that you have no access to. Not everything comes in your, you know, birth language. And I know that I think better than you because I only have one of them, not not three at once. But there's another m moment that and that comes, and this reminds me of Ramana, Ramanujan himself. There may be a poem in the Navachana uh, literature or in the Tamil literature that sounds suspiciously like or has an idea that's very much like what we res what we have in English somewhere. So he was especially interested in, this is apropos of the Vachana, I think it was a poem of Basava, though it may have been of Alama Prabhu, I don't recall, where the poet praises the Lord for the way in which the Lord batters him, uh, presents himself as difficult, forces the poet to work through, <laughs> to sense that he's not easy of access. and. Uh, in the course of doing that, he made reference to the 17th century English poem, which begins, Batter My Heart, and which is about Trinitarian theology on the part of a man who was the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. To be able to see that analogy beyond the actual words, but in the general idea, was something that probably can best happened to a person like Ramanujan, who was so fluent in both these languages, and not to me. So I'm grateful to him not only for the translation, 
but also for pointing me in the direction of an English poem that might be in some way analogous and that would help me read back toward the vachanas with a new sense of where one might find a vachana in English. Right, right. Um, and and uh, to wrap up this conversation, let me ask a, a couple more more questions, which this could endlessly go on, but for, for the sake of brevity. Um, you say at the very end, Bhakti's connection as religion. And I'm, I'm um, curious to, to hear you elaborate uh, on that, especially on this question of, of, a, of an anglophone, a contemporary bhakti, a contemporary meaning something that someone uh, who's born in the 21st century even can access. Um, is, is bhakti alive uh, in that sense, in outside of uh, texts which were written in the 17th or the 18th or the 16th or the 12th centuries? Um, is bhakti alive in the English language? Is bhakti alive in capitalism? Um, though, I mean, they're, they're all separate questions, but I hope I can convey that they're somewhat related. Would you say a little bit more about this? To those of you who are listening to this conversation, I hope you would sense that the best person to answer this question is undoubtedly Atre Majumdar and not Jack Hawley. But let me just tell you what it brings to mind for me. I want to say yes. First of all, the word religion, what does religion mean? And there's this massive move away from the word religion among American, um, huh, American what? Religionists? Christians? Uh, in the direction of the spiritual. So there's the sense that, you know, the organizational factor or the custom factor that's associated with the word English, religion in English isn't quite right to the depth of or the range of what it refers to. And I think that's an important uh, observation so that you get people who say, you know, they're the, the generation of the nuns. What does that mean? N-O-N-E. It means that when some form asks, what is your religion? You look at all the possibilities and have to discard them all and just check none at the end. But, but it isn't really necessarily none. It might be all, or all in a certain way, but you can't answer it on the form in that way. Religion isn't something you can say yes or no to. I'm this or that. It's more than that. What I would say about the word religion as it meets Indian languages is this. There, I, in my mind, <clears throat> there are two primary candidates for translating the, the idea religion into Indian languages that I know. One is Dharma. That's the one that's frequently used. And dharma, of course, has associations with law, with uh, correct behavior, with mores, as it would be called in Latin. And indeed, the word religion has those associations. But it also has associations to feeling. And there, our basic word would have to be bhakti, which is a word that is about sharing and participating in things. And carries the idea that it will necessarily go beyond the sorts of boundaries that dharma implies. That's what I think is happening in modern-day American post-Christianity. There is a searching for something bhakti-ish under the guise spiritual that you might not know to expect from the word religion. But if you were working in Hindi, let us say, and you had the words dharma and bhakti as alternatives, 
you would say, yes, that is bhakti. So that, I think, is a main aspect of what we're seeing in American religiosity, if I can call it that, today. It's a kind of bhaktiization of religion, and, and, and people don't know where it's heading. That's why they say none. We're at a moment in world history where we really don't know very well where we're heading, and this is a move that takes that seriously. Right. One last question, um, which is that when I started studying a little bit about bhakti, uh, first of all, the more word movement came up uh, frequently, which you have uh, debated extensively in this book, um, but also this idea of um, social equity, um, distributive equity of some sort, uh, with with the poems of Kabir and and, and Ravidas and Shuddhas and Tukaram and and, and others, um, comes up uh, regularly to kind of, uh, for want of a letter, better word, let me say, sociologize bhakti. Um, there's a uh, there's a kind of historical sociology of bhakti that I think over-determines sometimes scholarship around bhakti, um, which which I find uh, um, your work and also David Haberman's uh, a, fre a very refreshing kind of departure from. Um, would you, do you see it as, as quite like that, that there is a, a kind of historical sociology surrounding uh, how we understand bhakti standing in the 21st century today, and, uh, and there, there are possible departures from that. Thank you for that question and that set of insights. It's, it, as you know, it's a very hard question to respond to and to think about. One of the magics, I would say, of the word bhakti is that it exists in more than one strand. So Ramchandra Sutta, you know, classically, described one as the Nirguna strand and the other as the Saguna strand. We learn from manuscripts that actually the, the situation is much more mixed than that. You can't just say Kabir is over on the Nirguna side, the, you know, the Shankara side, and then Chaitanya is over there on the Saguna side. Surely he is, but he's an ecstatic, perhaps even an epileptic, and so he's challenging in his own person the boundaries. But one thing that I like about the word bhakti is that it holds those two contradictory meanings together. And there is a social dimension to it. When we say nirguna, we don't just mean Shankara, probably a Brahman, raising questions about the nature of ultimate reality. We mean the, we mean the question of not, that na word, not as to the social formations into which we're born. This can't be the whole thing. And let's pay attention to people whose voices are shaped by less privilege than some of the rest of us. That's a deep part of, of bhakti. And one can only hope that it becomes part of American spirituality too, so that the movement towards song religion and praise religion is not ignoring the difficulties of social station, but trying to lift it up and making it a part of what? Spiritual experience? Not just spiritual experience, it's bodily experience. That's the kind of thing that bhakti, I think, gets at in a way that the disparage the, the disparate nature of religion versus spiritual really doesn't. 
So, <laughs> a little Hebrew is coming to me. Good for you, you Hindi speakers. You got something right. You're thinking about a word that has more than one meaning, necessarily, and that really does have a social dimension to it. You can't get away from it if you're really thinking about Bhakti. Well, thank you, Professor John Holly. This is an excellent um, opportunity for me, and, and I hope uh, you enjoyed it too. And I'm really, we are all looking forward to your new work on Surdas's some new poems that you're translating. Some new poems, right? and those poems translated into a visual medium. So there's a, there's a, a painting for each poem, and Surdas appears in each of those paintings. So thanks for your good wishes. It's been great to talk with you. And I hope indeed that we'll have a chance to meet in where else? Vrindavan. Okay.